الحمد لله الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على خاتم الأنبياء أشرف المرسلين وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد We left at a cliffhanger in the last dars which was regarding the freeing of Thawaiba uh, the, which later became a wet nurse of the Prophet Sallallahu and how some people use this uh, narration and I wanted to make this clear because as a part of the seerah we take the fiqh from the seerah as well we learn many things of aqaid from our beliefs from the seerah as well so the hadith that is reported in Sahih al-Bukhari um, and this hadith number 5101 depending on the numbering as we know in Bukhari the numbering something varies uh, with Urwa he reports that somebody from the family of Abu Lahab, he saw him, and I'm going to summarize from the hadith, in a dream. And he asked him, what is your condition? And he, after his death, and Abu Lahab said, it's horrible, I'm punished day and night, it's very bad condition, except on Monday, when I'm given a little amount of water. There's different narration, meaning a little sip of water, because I freed Thawaiba, when she brought me the good news of the birth of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, no doubt to the authenticity of it, and people use this to justify celebrating Maludun Nabi. They say, look, Abu Lahab kafir, his adab becomes less because of him, yani freeing a woman uh, at the good news of the birth of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So why shouldn't we throw a party and eat sweets and dance and play music and whatever else they do? Add those molded things. Tayyib. Awwalan, first thing, this hadith is in Bukhari, but who is it from? This, this is why, and I'm going to take some time on this, because the people of Bid'ah, they, they collect some things, and many good brothers, mashallah, just because they see a lot of things together, Bukhari, they, oh, you know, then they get, they get like, uh, yani affected by it. And then when you try to clarify, you're like, oh, you guys are going against Bukhari. No, that's not the point. What does it mean that it's in Sahih Bukhari, that Sanadan, it is connected and checked and all those rawat are authentic? No problem to that. Tayyip, is this Hadith Qudsi? Yani is this something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us? No. No. Okay, Tayyip. Is this Marfu'an an Nabi alayhi salatu salam? Is this the Prophet sallallahu alayhi sallam telling us that Abu Jahl's, uh, Rabu Lahab's punishment is made less? Uh, huh? Is this from a Sahabi? Is this Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali radiyallahu telling us that this happened? No. Who's Urwa? He's a Tabi'i. Great Tabi'i. No? No doubt to him being a wonder, son of a Zubair and Asma, great scholar. Tayyip. So first thing to understand, this is not from Allah. This is not from the Prophet wasallam. This is not from a Sahabi. It's from Urwa. Tayyip. Is this Urwa's dream? No. Arwa didn't see this dream. He reports that in the Rawai in Al-Bukhari, he doesn't even mention who it was. One from the family of Abu Lahab. Tayyip. So now we have, first thing, the statement of a tabi'i. Is the statement of a tabi'i al-hujjah? La. Secondly, it's a dream not from the Prophet ﷺ. Dreams that are not from the Anbiya, are they a hujjah? Yeah, I mean, tomorrow, <laughs> one of the brothers here can say, I saw in a dream, Fajr is three raka'ah. Guys, come on, let's change it up. 
like, nah, that's not the way it works. We don't base our religion on people's dreams. The dreams of the Anbiya are wahi. So if this was Yusuf or Ibrahim or Nabiya Muhammad their dream, no doubt we would have taken as a hujjah. Past that, it's not a hujjah. Tayyib, what does the Quran tell us? Fuduqu falan nazidakum illa adaba. What does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tell us? That they will stay in it and they're, they're told in the Quran that nothing will happen except your adab will increase. That's in the Quran. Kalam of who? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Punishment in Jahannam never becomes easier. May Allah protect us all. That is the importance of what you're doing when you're giving da'wah to somebody who's heading to the nar, when you're protecting yourself from the nar. Understand something. For the kafir that enters the nar, the adab never becomes less. It only increases. This is in the Quran. Right? So this idea that somehow on certain days the adab becomes less goes khalif to the Quran. And it's not from a Nabi it's not from a Sahabi radiallahu anhu. Do kuffar get punished, uh, benefits in the akhirah for good deeds they did? Right? Yeah, there's a lot of discussion, but I will summarize it. The essence is not every kafir is the same. Right? A munafiq who has kufr inside but is pretending is worse than a kafir. I mean, he is a kafir, he doesn't believe in Allah. Full munafiq. I'm not saying somebody has sifat of a munafiq. Right? A full munafiq, the one who really in his heart, he's like, I don't believe in this stuff. I'm just doing it because, you know, whatever, people making me, whatever, right? That kind of a thing, may Allah protect us. They'll be in the worst part of Jahannam. Right? Amongst kuffar, there are different levels. Right? For example, uh, if we look at Abu Talib in the hadith that Rasulullah told us that he would have the lightest punishment in the Jahannam right? because he was uh, not a, يعني, a harsh kafir, he protected the Prophet we'll talk about that, right? But even his punishment doesn't decrease and there will be coals boiling under his feet that will be boiling his brain right? So what we know is the kuffar are different levels. So some are very harsh, they did a lot of volume and stuff like this. Yes, their punishment is more. And some are not so bad, so whatever. So their punishment is less. That's up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the deeds of the kuffar, good deeds, do not benefit them in the akhirah. It benefits them in dunya. Maybe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes some things easier for them. Maybe Allah uh, and he facilitates some hardship away from them. But the test that you have to pass before death, and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us all and give us istiqama and guide all of mankind towards a passing answer is that do you die upon shirk or not? If you die upon sins, may Allah protect us and not make it. We haven't cleansed ourselves. Yes, you can enter Jahannam, but you will leave because you're a Muslim. But if you die on kufr, shirk al akbar, then there is no exit out of Jahannam for that. May Allah protect us from it. Because we were at the point where the birth of Rasulullah sallallahu was being discussed, I wanted to mention this. I will mention another narration just to clarify, because I know shayateen. Unfortunately, we deal with them a lot. From jinn and ins. And we know their waswas. So let me just kill it before they go on. Right? They will say, well, what about yani, somebody who was good in, in jahiliya and did a lot of good things and why not and this. 
حديث صحيح مسلم طيب عن عائشة رضي الله عنها فما عائشة رضي الله عنها قالت she said يا رسول الله or messenger of Allah now who's responding to this رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم this is the مرفوع يعني this is the words of رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم she asked أين جدعان where is جدعان who is جدعان she said كان في جهلية in the جهلية he used to make صلح الرحم and he used to give food to the miskin he used to do a lot of good things فهل ذاك did that نافعه يعني did it benefit him قال صلى الله عليه وسلم لا لا ينفعه لا it did not benefit him in جهليه he used to feed the miskin he used to bring families together he used to do all kinds of the, what people see as good characteristics but what did the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم told him no he said إنه لم يقل he did not say يوماً, even for a day, رَبِّ اغْفِرْ لِي قَتَعِيَاءِ He didn't say once in his life, Oh Allah, forgive my mistakes. This is in Sahih Muslim. Regarding Yawm al-Din, for the day of Jinn. But what does it tell you? That those people in the past, why did they do those deeds? Did they do it for Allah? Did they do it for Al-Jannah? Did they do it to get out from... The, the, the filth of shirk and kufr and go toward La. They did it so people can praise them. Right? I mean, that's what people do. You want to be a good citizen. You want to be a, a, a well-respected person. Nothing wrong with that. I understand. But if that's your niyyah, then that's what you get. You can't do it for that and then expect jannah. So, there were people in the time of jahaliyyah, Ahlul Fitra, the people of Fitra, that kept on Tawheed, even without a Nabi at the time, alayhi salatu salam, right? even before, and we'll talk about, as we go through the seerah, we'll talk about them. And the Prophet made dua for them, and told us about them. And there were people that they saw this, this samawat, they saw these amazing skies above us, and the earth, and all this, and they said, there's no way that, a, that an idol, uh, you know, hanging on a, on a piece of wood made this. Right? So they realized it. And those people, even if they didn't make salah and siyam and ruku and sujood like we do, because they didn't know about it, but because they were on that fitrah, they are saved. But people who saw all these signs of Allah, but still did shirk, yeah, this is, this is what Rasulullah said about them. Tayyip. Back to the seerah. Uh, when we look at the post-birth of Rasulullah after the Prophet was born, as Ibn Hisham, Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Kathir, all of them, I don't think there's a single seerah book that I went through that didn't discuss this. They said that the tradition, the adat of the Arab war, that you would take your children and you would send them to the Bedouins. You need to understand these things. Right? Why the Bedouins? First, and there are many fawaid, and I've written down a few just from the different works of different ulema, First, understand the Arab, the actual Arab, were all Bedouins, originally. And we talked about the three types of Arab in the beginning, right? So originally, the first, first Arab, they finished. The second Arab, the second wave of Arab, they were all Bedouins. They weren't city folks, right? And then, as time grew, as like when they found water, like Zamzam and so on, they started to inhabit the cities. But their original traditions were that of Bedouins. That was their adat, this was their urf, that was their culture, right? Now again, when we talk about this zaman, this time, before Nabuwa, can we take fiqh rulings from it? La, 
This is before Nabuwa, and this is before prophethood. So these are just traditions, right? But this was the tradition of the people. That doesn't mean today, for example, uh, in San Diego, somebody has a child, we're going to take him to Julian and leave him out there in the mountain for in a couple of years. <laughs> Understand that everything has to be taken in the Arf type. That's not an Arf here. It's not a Shari'i hukam. Rasulullah used to go to ghar, the Ghar, the cave of Hira, and he used to make Ibadah. He didn't do Da'wah, he didn't make Salah like the way we do before Nabuwa. After Nabuwa, he never went. Now, we don't have a single hadith that after Nabuwa, he left the people, he left Mecca, and he just sat there. No. He did Badur, and we'll talk about that later in, in the Medina period. But yani, the things that are before Nabuwa, we don't take those for today's ahkam. Nabuwa, the prophethood, when it began, that's where our guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the Prophet begins. We study the past to understand, but just to be clear. Tell you, but why, why did the Arab do this? And this, these are benefits that are just, I mean, it's not shari'i benefits, they're just benefits. Tayyip, awwalan, because this was their essence. Like this is where the Arab came from, and they knew that. So they kind of wanted their future generations to bond with their past, the Bedouin lifestyle, right? Secondly, it freed up the wife to better serve her husband. Yani, so... Uh, when the when the child is young and it's very you know there's a, it's, a, it's a very hard time uh, you know if she could send the child to be with some trustworthy people who would do terbiya for her I mean not not just sit, sit him in front of a TV or a daycare or something like this no these were people that were professionals that the ones that came and we'll explain that inshallah so it would free her so she could take care of her home life third it would improve their Arabic tell you now I'm gonna put a caveat here right no doubt. In the past, the Bedouins had the best Arabic. And even when we had disagreements between Ahlul Kufa, the people of Kufa, and Ahlul Basra, the two madahib, the two famous madahib in Na'um, in the Arabic grammar. You know, you have madahib in fiqh, like Hanafi, Shafi, Maliki, Hanbali, Dairi. You have madahib in Aqidah, like Asari, Ashari, Maturudi, Jahmi, Matizli. You have madahib in Na'um. And there is Sebaway and his people of Basra and so on, and Khalil and so on. You have the Madahib and Nahum. When they had a disagreement, who would make the decision? The Bedouins. The Bedouins were that good in Arabic and grammar that the greatest scholars of Nahum would go to them to make a decision. Imam al-Shafi'i, the great scholar Imam al-Shafi'i, he said, I traveled six months. Six months I went traveling, finding different Bedouins so that I can learn from them the adab, yani the etiquettes of Arabi. Uh, Al-Asma'i, Al he's a great scholar in Nahum. And you may not know him so much, but if you know Arabic grammar, you know him. He said, I spent months traveling with the Bedouins because one word in the Quran had given me a difficult understanding. Like I couldn't understand the exact usage of this word. So I just traveled with them until I found one of them use it and I understood the context of it. And these are Arab and these are scholars of Nahum. And this is why it is upon us. Imam al-Shafi'i said it's wajib upon the Muslim to learn Arabic. Even if you look at the aqwal of other ulema, at least to learn enough that you understand al-Fatiha and the Athar of Salah. And what you are saying and standing in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, no doubt this is wajib. Okay? Many people, they're making salah, making salah so many years, you ask them, what are you reading? They have no idea. Rabbi Qfirli, Rabbi what does it mean? I don't know. Dad taught it to me. Okay? 
And what's worse than that, unfortunately, is we have many people who memorize the whole Quran. And alhamdulillah, may Allah reward them for it, this benefit in just memorizing and just reading. But they spend a lifetime memorizing and makhalaj and things, but they don't understand even Al-Fatiha. It is very sad because you want to understand. And don't think this is yani, to learn Ammiya. These fawaid are not for Ammiya. It's not for you to, Ya Zalamayshu. I go like, eh? Shlonak? What is Shlonak in the Quran? La, this is for the Quran. This is for Lugha al Arabiya al Fasih. And if you're going to if you're going to say that Shlonak is Arabic, yeah, then I'm going to say Urdu is Arabic as well. Why? How do you say, how are you in Fusha? Kirhal. You're confused? Kirhal. How do you say in Urdu? Kirhal. How do you say in Iraqi? Shlonak. Mahu Akrab. What's closer to Kifahalak? Kyahale or Shlonak? So I'm saying be sure that you talk about Allah al-Arabiya al-Fasiha. Fusha. That look of the Quran. So they would learn the language. Fourth, it would strengthen the body. City life weakens you. City slickers weakens you. Country life toughens you up. Bedouin life definitely toughens you up. It's a tough life, so it would strengthen them. And they would stay away from the infections and plagues and uh, viruses, as we could say nowadays, and bacterial infections and things. Because Mecca, for example, people from all over the world would come there. So if there was a coronavirus at that time, there'd be all kinds of infections. It was a super spreading event, right? So what would happen? Is you know unlike the coronavirus, most viruses and, and bacteria attack children really worse, bad, right? So a lot of people would come, and then a lot of the little children, because their immune system wouldn't be developed, they would die from it. They didn't have emergency hospitals and all that kind of stuff. So the Arab, I mean, just one of the things they felt that if they were out in the Bedouin lifestyle, they would be away from a lot of that until they were older and their immune system more developed, and so on. And lastly, it would stop them from the influence. Again, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. I'm just explaining what was their mindset from the influence of the Ajam. Because a lot of the people that would come to Mecca would be from outskirts. And they were not the original Arab because Mecca was a place of Tijara and so on. And many other bigger cities. So what would happen is the Arab had their own manly lifestyle. They would have Sifatul Rujula and so on. And when they would interact a lot with the others, then sometimes they felt that they were losing that. So the Bedouins wouldn't interact with people, so they felt this was the best. Tayyib. This was their reasoning. Caviar. I was in Ra'sul Khaimah in Amarat. And I was studying Arabic. I was doing Ajrumi at the time uh, with the Sheikh from Azhar. And I heard all of I mean, I was reading all of these great things about the Bedouins. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go to the Bedouins. And I want to practice Arabic with them and learn that pure fusha of Arabi and how, you know, I was reading all this stuff from a chef and how the, the, the munadara, the, the debates between the people of Kufa and, and how the Khalifa would bring the Bedouins out. Like, I'm doing it. And I went out to the Bedouins in, in Emirat. Allah, they spoke a different language. <laughs> I couldn't understand Bachir and uh, everything was uh, different. Right? I was shocked, right? So today, if you do want to learn Arabic, don't go out to the Bedouins, you know. Unfortunately, the Arabic uh, amongst the Bedouins is some of the worst that I've heard uh, nowadays. May Allah protect us. Um, so, why did the Bedouins do it? The Bedouins did it because, one, 
they wanted to build ties with the city folk because the city folk were financially better. They didn't do it for money. The Arab had a lot of honor. They felt it, even the Bedouins, they felt it uh, disgraceful to take money for things. Like today, unfortunately, we don't have that honor. Right? Today, Arab or Ajam. Today, everybody's like, sure, I'll give you a ride. Gas money? <laughs> right? Uh, somebody's like, yeah, I got you, no problem, bro. 29.99. But the Arab. And the people of honor, they have this thing where they love to make ikram. They love to help each other, right? So even these Bedouins who were, who were financially struggling, they weren't rich. Bedouins were poor. The city folk in Mecca and so on, they used to have tijara, trade. They, went, made, they made mad money. like They made a lot of money, right? The Bedouins, they lived a simple lifestyle. They had camels, they had sheep, they had goats, they had whatever they had. And they would raise them and they would live off that. But they didn't become rich. Even till today... I mean, most of the wealth of America is in the city centers, right? Most of the wealthiest people you find in New York or LA or Bay or Chicago or whatever, right? You hardly ever find like a farmer that has like his own farm in Montana and he's like a billionaire. Right? You don't see Bezos out there, you know, working on a farm and stuff like this, right? Bezos or whatever, right? So, the Arab at the time were the same. So they were, they were financially not strong, the Bedouins, but they were people of honor. So they wouldn't take money for it. But what it would do is the city people who would give them their child would treat them like family, meaning they would come and visit. They wouldn't just leave the child and run away. They would keep up with them and they would bring gifts. And, and if there was ever a need, obviously they were there to help. They, it made a bond. So that was something reason, something they wanted to do. So they would always want to take the child of the most powerful and richest people. Right? Because... I mean, if you, I mean, it's just basic logic. Tomorrow, if you had to build a very strong bond, would you rather make it with Bill Gates? Be a little careful if he takes you anywhere. But, um, or would you make it with some, I mean, nobody, right? Well, everybody would want to get to, you know, have that kind of relationship. So you could be like, hey, I have this new idea for an app or whatever. And he might be like, Shayba, you got it, right? So, this is something they wanted to look for. And on top of that, they, they, would, they would also be given... Uh, any, an honor, like if they raised the son uh, of the uh, tribal leader of Banu Tamim, and it would be an honor for them, right? Later on when that child becomes the leader, he will remember you, you, are, you, you will breastfeed them, you have a relationship with them, and so on. Tayyib, so one of the Qabail, one of the tribes of the Arabs, Sa'ad ibn Bakr, it's a very famous tribe, it's still around, alhamdulillah, uh, they came to Mecca, and these were Bedouins, to take these children. And one of them, her name is Halima. Halima Sa'diya. Sa'diya, yani, Banu Sa'd. Halima, I mean, I'm sure you've heard her name. She was, yani, somebody from the very honorable people of Banu Sa'd, but very poor. Right? Her husband's name is Al-Harith. Al-Harith, he was, yani, a Bedouin, but also very poor. They had a camel, but the camel was dry. I mean, it didn't, uh, she didn't give a lot of milk. Right? And they had a donkey. That's how they would get around. The donkey was really their transport. And the donkey was weak, old. And they had a couple of goats. They had a few goats. But most of them dry. And it was a, a drought at that time. And the Arabian Peninsula didn't have a lot anyway. So when she was going to Mecca, and she reports this, and Umm Ayman and others report from her, these are things Sanadan, chained, I checked, right? She said, when we were going, 
I got left behind. The other women and their husbands from Banu Sa'ad, they were ahead of us because their camels and their horses and their donkeys were strong. So as we were going, we were the last. And they were telling us, you're going to make us late. And, and I, I would tell them, what can I do? This donkey is the way it is. So they were going very slow. By the time she got to Mecca, she said I was one of the last people. And when I got to where the people would come to make these kinds of uh, relation negotiations, everybody had taken all of the children of the Ashraf, yani of the most honored people of Mecca. Right? Now subhanAllah, as I was reading this and I was taking notes, I was just thinking, how insan is, yani, lacks foresight, right? Who is left? Sayyidun Nas. Ashraf al-Makhluqat. Imam al-Anbiya. But in her mind, all the Ashraf are gone. Who is left there? The most honored of all of mankind. The last of all the prophets, the one who led the, who the imam for all the prophets, the, the most distinguished of the prophets, the, the best of creation is still there. Right? Sometimes we have this in dunya. Uh, let's say we see somebody who is a alim. Somebody who is a khadim of the Qur'an. Like he does service, he teaches the Qur'an. He, Somebody who is a khadim of the ahadith of al-Nabawiyah, any ahadith al-Nabawiyah of the hadith, or somebody who spends their life in da'wah, in calling people towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Somebody who has written beneficial works that people around the world are benefiting from, and so on and so on. You find these people 70, 80 years of teaching Qur'an and tafsir and ahadith and fiqh every day for Allah. Not those that are doing it to make a check, but for Allah. And we see them, and we're like, Sheikh, yeah. I was gonna sit, I had some, yeah. And then at the same gathering, you see some of the, the fusak, the fujar, the, the worst of people, the, the musicians and actors and people of dunya, muluk, and things like this. The ones that, Wallahu alam, I'm not gonna go too far, right? But right there, even as us, I'm not even talking about the people of dunya, even us, we're like, oh, you know what's really good for da'wah? Let me make some strong relationship with him. If this guy, this sports star becomes Muslim, that is way more important than that poor guy. Read Abbasa wa Tawalla. Read the tafsirah. Don't think like that. Think what is the most valuable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So here, she came... And she saw nothing but an orphan. The Prophet ﷺ's father, Abdullah, had died. So she saw nothing but an orphan. She said to her husband, what's the orphan going to do for us? Meaning, even if we take him, and he, he doesn't have a father that's going to come and protect and help. And, you know, uh, orphans, usually, they're not given as much attention. Even if the grandparents are taking care of them, they're really great grandparents. But they can't be on it like the parent. Illa mashallah, except who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala But this is the regular of mankind, right? So she saw this orphan, who is this? His name is Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa right? Who is son of Abdullah? Where is Abdullah? He died. Okay. Let's go back. So they started going back. They left him. As she was going back, she said, Harith, her husband was talking to her, and she said, you know, we came all this way. Let's just take him. Why not? I mean... It's better than nothing, better than going empty-handed. 
Allah subhanahu wrote that blessing for her in Qadr. So she turned around, they went back, and they took the Prophet sallallahu And this is her own hadith that is Sanadan. And again, because Umm Ayman and others went and visited and spoke to her, and she came, and Umm Ayman becomes a Muslim, so she narrates a lot of these hadith. And Rasulullah sallallahu narrates some of these, and we'll talk about those. She said, as soon as we put this child on the donkey, the donkey started running. Subhanallah. These are from the Mu'ajizat al-Nabi alayhi salatu. People are like, where is the miracle of your Prophet? Man, wait, just sit, watch the dars. We'll give you thousands. Okay. She said, I was so shocked myself that I was in front of the Qabila. <laughs> the Qabila told her, the tribe, Banu Sa'ad, that you have sold your donkey and bought a new one. <laughs> she told him, no, it's the same donkey. They said, no way. We were with you on the way over here. That's not the same donkey. Just, she's like, I was slowing down my donkey to keep up with the rest of them and he was ahead of them. But you know, again, she didn't know. So she said, you know, it's a fluke. You know, this happens sometimes. She said, we went home and the camel, the she camel, the milk was pouring. She's the first time in years, this old she camel, and the way, I'm mean, not going to get too much into anatomy here, but it, the way it works is when the camel is impregnated, has a child, that's when it, or, or a cow, it doesn't always give milk. So she said, this camel is too old to be impregnated. The last child it had, it was still running off those milk, and we thought after this, it would be dinner. <laughs> but she says, why Allah, the milk was flowing. She said, I drank, my husband drank, we fed the children. She had other children, right? One of her children is Abdullah, right? And uh, Unaysay, we'll talk about them, inshallah. Because they are the foster children, which meaning foster through breastfeeding, uh, brothers and sisters of the Prophet She said, we fed all our children. We were surprised. She said, at that moment, I realized that this is something special. This child, I told my husband, Harid, this, this child is Barakah. I'm glad we went back. Tayyip. Now, as they were going forward, she said, myself, she's talking about Halima, she said, my own milk would not be enough to feed my son, Big Abdullah. She said, why? Because she said, I didn't eat much, and the camel didn't give me much milk, and we didn't have enough, so my own milk was lacking. She said, that night, I fed my son, and I fed Muhammad, as a baby, right? And she said, I still had more milk. I noticed all these things, so she said, I, I treated him with great honor. This is the, يعني, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserving the honor of the Prophet She said, all of the children that they got, I got the one who was a yatim, but I felt that Allah blessed me. These are her own narrations. Tayyib. Now, when we look at all of these things that are blessed. And in these riwayat, Mubarak Puri has in Rahik ibn Kathir ibn Ishaq, Abu Ya'la ibn Hibban, Al Haythami, great to be Sahih, and so on. Even if there is some ta'an from some of the imma uh, about some of the asanid, no doubt they are supported by clear narration from the Prophet himself. So they are uh, reliable narrations. At the time, there was drought. In the drought, when the goats would go out to graze, there would not be much to graze on. This is the desert of Arabia, in the Bedouins. So the goats would come back and they wouldn't have much milk. But at that time, her goats would come and they would give so much milk that she would be giving it to others. 
It would be flowing, overflowing. They didn't have refrigerators to put it. So when everybody drank and they still had more, they would be giving it away. So Banu Sa'ad said that you have a secret pasture. You have a secret pasture where you take your goats. She said, send your goats with her goats. Everybody said, all the goats go to the same place. They didn't have their own properties and stuff. You know, the goats would just go out. So she said, my secret pasture is this boy. She started to recognize the barakah of the Prophet Tayyip, at the age of two, she was supposed to return Rasulullah to Amin. His father is dead, but his mother is alive. And at this time, Halima would get visited by the mother of the Prophet and Umm Ayman, the Al-Baraka, the, the freed slave, which will be freed later, but at the time she was a slave of the family of Rasulullah And they would come and check up on the Prophet But at the age of two, you're supposed to give them back. Halima realized that this child is barak. Nobody wants to get, يعني, leave something like that from their life. So she didn't want to take him back. There is a mursal rawaya. Mursal means that the chain between the tabi'i and the sahabi is missing. Mursal rawayat are weak, but they're not very weak. I will mention it just for the benefit, but I'm letting you know it's mursal. Ibn Sa'ad has it in Tabaqat, Ibn Ishaq has it in Sirah. That the Yahud, they came... And they saw, because they used to go around the Arab. The Yahud, they used to go to the different places. They were looking for the last prophet. They saw this child, and they were men, and they had weapons. And this was Halima by herself. Harat was not with her. And in the Bedouin, the men would go out, and they would have their own things they would do. So she was by her. They didn't have hijab and all this stuff at the time. So when they saw her, and they saw him, they saw on him the signs that were in their books for the last prophet. So they started to question her. They, they asked about this child, and she gave answers until they said, kill him. But they, now she was not able to stop them, right? But they said one more question. They said, is he an orphan? So she lied. She said, no, this is my son. What are you talking about orphan? Right? They said, okay, leave him. Because one of the signs we have is that he would be an orphan. And if he's not an orphan, and this lady has told us all the answers truthfully, so they trusted her, so they let her go. Now this is a mursal rawaya, but to know the background. But this is why Ibn Ishaq and others says, after this, Halima said, let me take him back. Because she was afraid for him, and she loved him. She said, I saw the best of akhlaq, even as a little child. I saw him develop very fast. He was very intelligent. He was very quick to understand things. But... She wanted to take him back. When she took him back, she couldn't give him up. She took him to Mecca, but then she told Amina, if you don't mind, let him stay with me a little bit longer. Amina, she loved her child. She wanted the child back, but she said, you know, Halima, she begged and she asked. She said, okay, keep him for a little longer. And then inshallah, I'll ask him to become back to me. Here, when she went back, a, a very clear Sahih Hadith. It's reported in Sahih Muslim, in Kitab Al-Iman, from Anas ibn Malik, from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi and in many other books of Hadith, and every book of Tariq has, is Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi was out grazing the goats and playing. And the children, they would go out, they would be taking care of the goats and things, but they would also play with Abdullah, the son of Halima, and 
Shayma, not Shayba, but Shayma, she was one of the daughters, and Unaysa, she was also one of the daughters of Halima. They're all little kids, they were playing. And this is Khilaf of Ulema, of course. As we mentioned, these are not, we don't have dates here. Right? We don't have 1942 and 1962. So the, the, the years, there is some Khilaf. Some of the Ulema said the second, fourth, sixth, so on. But what is correct? What I found to be correct is the fourth year of the life of the Prophet And he was about four years of age. At this time, they were playing, and then the children saw a stranger, an angel. They didn't know it was an angel. They just saw a stranger. Come and take the Prophet and lay him down. And cut open his chest. Now the Prophet is not screaming, he's not yelling, he's not out there, you know, having a fit. He's calm. Now the children, they see this and they run. And what are they going to do? They run home to Halima and they said, Verily, uh, Muhammad. Yani Muhammad has been killed. At this, Halima, she became very afraid. She went out to where the Prophet ﷺ was, where the children took her. What the children saw, and the Prophet ﷺ himself narrates, is that a man came and he cut open the chest and took out the heart of the Prophet ﷺ. Now the children ran away at this point. But they saw this. They're witnesses, eyewitnesses. The Prophet ﷺ himself explains this in the Rara and Sahih Muslim. Anash ibn Malik, he reports to the Prophet ﷺ that this was Jibreel. And he came and he opened the chest of the Prophet ﷺ, took out his heart and washed it in a basin of gold that had the water of Zamzam, with the water of Zamzam. And took out from his heart something and told him, this was the portion of shaitan in your heart that every insan has. Tayyib. A few points here. We as Muslims obviously believe this. Why? We have clear Sahih Ahadith on this. Alam nashrah laka sadrak. It's also in the Quran. Clear ayah in the Quran. So no doubt we believe this. Right? I was reading one of the Orientalists. The Orientalists, you know, those that study Islam to kind of harm Islam. And then some of our shiuk then go study with. So, uh, one of the Orientalists, and this is يعني, uh, from the 1800s. He wrote and he said, look at the uh, foolishness of the Muslim belief. Like he was mocking it. He said, they said that a heart could be taken out of the chest and put back in. That's impossible. We know that if a heart is taken out, a person dies. So the Islamic belief is unscientific. But now today, doctors perform open heart surgeries. They take hearts out and put hearts in and replace people's hearts with pig hearts and machines and... Now we see it. Now we see it. And when the doctors do it and tell us, how many of you personally with your own eyes witnessed a heart being taken out? You were in the operation theater where the heart, you physically saw it come out. How many? Raise your hands. None of you. Do you believe it happens? Every kafir on the street, if you go and ask them, is there an open heart surgery, would they believe it? Have they seen it? They believe that, right? But when the Qur'an tells us something, when the Prophet ﷺ tells us the Ajud Ma'ajud exists, where could they exist? I haven't seen them. Have you seen it on Google Maps? Ajud Ma'ajud location. No results. It can't be. Weakness of Iman. Weakness of Iman. 
A doctor tells you something, it is na'udhu billah today as if the Qur'an is revealed about it. I'm not saying don't listen to your doctors. Hey, I'm not anti-doctor, don't get me wrong, I don't want to offend any MDs and stuff, right? But I'm just saying, the Qur'an is a haq, he has more haq, the Qur'an has more right that we obey it and believe in it. The Prophet and when he tells us in a sahih hadith something, it has more right upon the Muslim that we believe in it than what we see on TV, than what we see with our own eyes, than what a doctor tells us, than anybody else tells us. So this is something amazing. Those Orientalists that made fun of this, if they were alive today, they would have been mocked. But the Orientalists today mock us for things, and inshallah in a few years when they see it, they will be mocked for it as well. And if not in this dunya, there is the Akhah. When Halima went back and she saw the Prophet ﷺ, she saw that the color of his face had changed. And he sat up and there was a mark. This is not imagination. There was a mark where the chest had been opened. And she saw it and she reported it. Anas ibn Malik, he's in Medina. And the Prophet narrates his hadith to him. And he says, I saw the stitch mark of the needle. Mikhyat, this is where the needle would be. Now, what does that exactly mean? Wallahu a'la. Was it like stitching? Was it like a slice? Wallahu a'la. But that mark was still there in Medina after Hijrah when Anas ibn Malik first hand report saw it. Tayyib, this is where we're at. I will just mention something in brief, which is how many times was the chest of the Prophet ﷺ opened? Twice. Twice? Three? Four? Five? Anybody? Most people only know about one. Ibn Hajar mentions five. Out of the five, one of them I found no sanad for. So I just, let's put that aside. Four I found in the books of Hadith. Two of them in Bukhari and Muslim. In Bukhari and Muslim. One of them in in Muslim as the one we just mentioned. At the age of four years of age. One of them in Al-Bukhari, which is at the time of Isra al-Mi'raj. When Rasulullah was about 50 years of age. So these two, no doubt to their authenticity. There are two more. One is at the age of 10 years. And this is in the Muslim Imam Ahmad and Ibn Asakir and others have mentioned it. And one of them being when he got Nabuwa, when he got the Prophethood, Abu Nu'im and others, Abd Sa'ad and others have mentioned this. The narration about Prophethood, no doubt it's weak. There is weakness in that narration. The narration about the, at the age of 10, we will discuss. But at least twice we can say no doubt from authentic ahadith from the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba and eyewitness accounts. Tayyib. Here, after this incident, after four years of age, this time Halima became afraid. She loved having the barakah of the Prophet ﷺ around her, but she became afraid. Because she realized that what if he gets killed? And what if some jinn or some other creation kills him? Or the people like the Yahud or other kill him? It would be her responsibility. She did not want that on her head. Because she loved the Prophet ﷺ. She saw the great akhlaq of the Prophet ﷺ, even as a child. Some people say, oh, it's not fair. Why was that thing taken out of the heart of the Prophet and not mine and so on? Because he was worthy of it. Because Allah saw him worthy of it. Make yourself worthy. Cleanse your heart yourself. 
But this is the problem. We are, we are not those people. We just want excuse after excuse to sin. So, seeing this beautiful uh, child and worrying about him, she decided to return. This is a weak narration that on the way back he was lost and the family of Abu Sufyan found him. But again, those are weak narrations, so I skip most of those just to rely upon the authentic narrations. When he came back to his mother Amina, and this is yani, after the fourth year of his life, Amina wanted to visit her husband's grave. Where did her husband die? Abdullah. Huh? In Medina, on the outskirts of Medina. And she loved her husband. And this is from the yani, love of a woman that even after the death of her husband, she loves him. You find many brothers the same way. Even after the death of their wife, they love their wife. And they want to honor them. And the Prophet ﷺ was like this. He used to honor the, the friends of Khatija anha and send them gifts and things, even after his death, even after Hijrah. So she wanted to go visit the grave of her husband. Now, before I go on, I, I had mentioned this, but I want to clarify. We don't take ahkam from this time period. This is time of Jahiliyyah, this is before Nabuwa. So we don't want the people to be like, ah, she visited the grave, so why are you stopping women from visiting graves, right? Ah, she went to Medina by herself, which again, uh, the narration she did not, but anyway. So what's wrong? Understand, this is before Nabuwa. So don't try to twist things, right? Regarding visit, yani, women visiting graves, there are yani, four, or you can say three aqwal of ulema. One of them, if we take all four of them, one of them that it is mustahab, like it is for men. One of them that it is mubah, it is permissible. Some of them said it is mutlakan haram. And this is the call of Sheikh Ibn Abbas. And one of them, which is the rajih, what is correct, is that it is not something that should regularly be done, but under certain conditions that it is permissible. And that is the call of Sheikh Ibn Uthaymeen. The hadith that people use to show that it is permissible, they mention the hadith of Rasulullah that I used to forbid you from visiting the graves, but now I give you permission. But this is aam, this is general for men and women. Right? We're not discussing aam, we're discussing something general. There is the hadith that yani, there is a great reminder in visiting the graves that Rasulullah encouraged the people, but again, those are all aam. The khas, the clear hadith that is Imam Al-Tirmidhi has mentioned and it is sahih, is la'an Allah. That there is a la'an of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in one of the rawayat of the Maja, la'an of Rasulullah for zawarat al-qubur, for those women that often visit the qabr. La'an of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the, the, the curse of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So this hadith is sahih and it is very clear. But as Shaykh Ibn Al-Thameen mentioned that if somebody Occasionally visited, they would not come under zawarat because this is this is what they call al-jins. Al-jins it shows something that happens a lot. That's why you call it the jins, right? Meaning, uh, if if ism fa'il is different. For example, somebody uh, sells something occasionally. You don't call. You just say he he sells it. But if you are like he is the utter man, as Abdul Razak is, right? He is the other guy, right? That means that he's so 
well known and he does it so much and he's so good at it that you give the sifa to him himself, not just the ism fa'il. Right? So anyway, I'm not going to go deep there, but this is the understanding. Tayyib. But I will mention some of the the uh, shurut. One, it should not be regularly. Like, like every janazah and every time or on a regular basis, women going to the qubur, la. This is forbidden. It should not be where there is mixing of men and women. Today, even at janazah, you see mixing of men and women. Astaghfirullah. Yani, the janazah has become a place of fitna for us. And this is something sad. Hassan al-Basri saw somebody eating in the maqbara. He said, this person has forgotten death. His heart is dead. How can he be at a maqbara? He sees the dead and he's eating. Today we go to a janazah, people are joking. People are mixing. People are yani, spending days there hanging out and talking about others. So there should no be no mixing of men and women. It should not be in a way of bid'ah or shirk. I mean, people go to the qubur and do bid'ah and shirk. Obviously, mutlaqan, that's haram. A person should not travel to go to the grave of anybody. You don't take on a travel to visit Qubur. Right? The only three places you can travel for barakah, for reward, is Masjid al-Haram, Masjid al-Nabi, Masjid al-Aqsa. Rasulullah said, do not take on a travel illa thalatah. He didn't say, don't travel to a masjid illa thalata. These people have made idraj. They add their own wording into the hadith. No, do not carry out any travel except for these three. What does that mean for barakah? People don't go visit the haram anymore as much. Mecca. People don't go to Masjid Nabi as much. Hardly anybody goes to Aqsa. Even those that can go with their passport, hardly anybody. But you go to a bid'ah grave of a donkey, no, literally, sometimes they've been dug up, there were donkeys. You can ask brothers, right? There's evidences. And mashallah, every day, men and women, mashallah. like people of ghira, like all hijab, but to the people of bid'ah, it's okay, let the women go. What's going on? Not. You have to understand the things in their place. Lastly, mutlaqan, by the consensus of the ulama, they should not go dressed up. Meaning, makeup up, perfumed up, wearing clothes that attracted. Subhanallah, today you go to a, a, a janazah and women are dressed as if they're going to a wedding. Tight jeans and shorts and na'udhu billah. What happened to us? What happened to the men of this ummah? Allah Mustafa. Khair Amina, she sets out on this travel to go see her husband's grave and According to some of the narrations, it was her and Umm Ayman and the Prophet ﷺ. But I found narrations that were stronger that mentioned that uh, Abdul Muttalib was with them. He did not want to allow her to go alone. Even in Jahiliyyah, he knew the, the reasons why women shouldn't travel alone better than our Muslims today. Today, every Muslim has an excuse. It's okay. She's got a conference for selling makeup. Sharay excuse somehow. So they were going on two camels. Uh, Rasulullah sallallahu as a child at the sixth year of his age, and Abdul Muttalib were on one, and Amina and Halima and Amina and Um Ayman Baraka were on the other. As they were going, when they got to Medina, 
they went to the grave of, of uh, Abdullah and they visited the family that was there. The uncles of Amina and, and those because we mentioned how people married from Medina and so on that were there. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa in a marfu' hadith, in a hadith that he mentioned himself, he says, I remember going there. I remember being there. I remember seeing these places. He talked about the top of one of the castles, Barun Najjar. Barun Najjar are the uncles of the Prophet. And the Prophet was such an honorable person. He would honor the people of Medina from those times. And he would say, I remember playing with Onaysa here at this place. And I remember playing with the children of Ansar. And birds would sit on this on ledge and we would make them fly. And we would go and do these things. And he would remember. So this, again, if you look at the earlier narration when Sam Alema said something about Asanib, it is confirmed by these other narrations. And I'm saying this because some people watch the dars and they just like to pick false. So they're like, they go home, they look up that one narration, like, ha! Sheikh Fulan said it's weak, ha! Yeah, you just read one hadith, go read the rest of them first. That's why we bring so many books to put, to put it together. So here, they spent uh, around a month there. And at this time, when they were coming back, Amina became sick. And she died. And subhanAllah, yani, this is something that is very difficult because the Prophet ﷺ father was already dead. He passed away from this dunya. Right? Now, at the age of six, his mother dies. He's very young. And this is something very difficult. Not having parents. Parents are a big ni'mah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Good parents. And nobody can love you like your parents. Nobody supports you like your parents. Nobody cares about you like your parents. And when they are not there, it's a very difficult life. Especially in that time in Arabia. When they came back to Mecca, after having buried Amina, and we know she did not die on Islam. We know that Rasulullah knew where her grave was. And when he made hijrah, he didn't go there for visiting her grave. But when he made hijrah for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala permission to visit the grave. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted it to him. You are allowed to visit the grave even of a Catholic. But when he asked permission to intercede for her, Allah did not give it to him. And this is something that was very difficult, but this is the qadr that Allah wrote. Abdul Muttalib now, he loved the Prophet and he saw the great akhlaq and, and behaviors of such a young child. It's a beautiful hadith, Sahih, that Abdul Muttalib, he would sit at the, in the shade of the Kaaba. Yani the Kaaba, this is before Nabu. He would sit and he would have like a bedding or like a mattress or a little something. You know, it's not like thrones. That the Arab, they didn't like to sit on chairs. They used to like to sit on the floor. And they would put like a, something to sit on. And he would have a special one for him. On his mat, nobody was allowed to sit. And out of his honor, nobody would sit. He was a Sayyid, he was a leader, Abdul Muttalib. So when he would then come and sit, his sons would be standing. They wouldn't sit. Even before he got there, they wouldn't sit. Out of honor for their father. And when he would sit, they would be standing to serve him. And then the people of Quraysh and others would come and ask him for advice and ask him for things and bring their problems because he was a leader. And nobody would be allowed to sit in that mat in the shade. They would all be standing in the sun except for him. Except 
Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa Even as a child, he would go and sit, and when the sons of Abdul Muttalib would tell him, no, you cannot sit here, Abdul Muttalib would tell them, let him sit. Abu Talib, he says that when Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa this is a poem that he wrote later. He says, when he was young, we saw the honor that our father gave to him. There, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa used to sit with Abdul Muttalib, and he was honored and protected. Banu Mudlij was a tribe that came. See? There is, an, there is a science called Ilmul Farasa. You know what Farasa is? Huh? Uh, Physiognomy? It's, it's in English too, I looked it up. But Ilmul uh, Farasa is the science that you can read from people's characteristics about them. Umar ibn Khattab, عنه, he was an expert in it, right? He saw a man, didn't know him. He said, he used to be a magician. I said, yes, you're right. So I saw it on your face. Like even in English, we say it was written all over his face. Even though the science is now lost, the Greeks used to study it as well. There is two aspects of it. One is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As Rasulullah sallallahu said, that ittaqu mu'min, be, be, be aware of the farasat al-mu'min, the farasa of a mu'min, he sees with the nur of Allah, meaning Allah exposes certain things to him. And then there is that which is studied. Imam Shafi'i, he went and studied it. There are books still today that are taught by ulema on this. So, Banu Mudlij, they were experts in this. Not from the aspects of being believers, but from the aspect that can be studied. I'll give you an example of them uh, in the Hadith Sahih, where Usama ibn Zayd. Usama is the son of Zayd ibn al-Harith. Zayd ibn al-Harith was a slave. But he was white. Slavery was not racial amongst the Arabs. He was white. He was enslaved during يعني, a raid by one of the tribe. The, before Islam, what the Arabs used to do, if they could catch you somewhere, they were enslaved. They were, and others. And that's why the slaves that were brought to the Prophet ﷺ, most of them were either through the Jahaliyyah, in the time of Jahal, like Umm Ayman and, and Zayd ibn Arath and so on, or يعني, through uh, Non-Muslims enslaving them. For example, Maria Qiptiya. The, the Kuffar, they always started to bring these little things up. Maria Qiptiya. Maria, who enslaved her? The Christian king of Egypt. Who freed her? The Prophet Zayd ibn Harith. He was enslaved by the Arabs in Jahiliyyah. And the Prophet enslaved him. Freed him. Right? So Zayd ibn Harith, he was very light-skinned. He married a woman from Africa. Right? We talked about her earlier, Barakah from Ayman. She was Habashiyah. So Usama, his son was dark. So the Quraysh, they used to make jokes a little bit. Oh, that's not his son. He's really dark. And he's really white. And the Arabs were too honorable to be like, what? My wife's name? So, Banu Mudlij, they saw them sleeping. The Arab was sleeping in the daytime. And both of them were covered except their feet. And they saw the feet and they said, one of these is from the other. They didn't know them. Just from seeing the feet, they could see the DNA match. You know? They didn't need, what's that doctor or whatever that does the DNA test? Right? They, they saw this and they knew, knew this. This is how good they were. This is in hadith. When they came, they saw the Prophet ﷺ sitting at Dhul Muttalib. They said, this child has from the likeness of Ibrahim. 
and he will be revealed to like Ibrahim was. SubhanAllah, these are miracles of the Prophet as a child. At this time, Abdul Muttalib told Abu Talib, his son, he said, this child is special. And these people have said something heavy. So if I'm not alive, as your father, I command you to take care of him. To Abu Talib, the son of Abdul Muttalib, the father of Ali bin Abi Talib. Here, when he was eight years old, the Prophet ﷺ, his grandfather Abdul Muttalib died. It's a rough life. That's a rough life. Your father is dead, your mother dies, your grandfather dies, you're orphaned. I mean, this a society that goes by family ties and protection of fathers and things. But that is the hikmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How many of us today have the most comfortable lives and we are the most ghafil of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? I mean, as a, as, as a human, like, like, like look at atheism rates. The highest numbers of atheists are going to be in countries that have the most luxurious lives. You go to like broke countries, poor countries, countries where they're starving and you go talk to somebody and they're like, Alhamdulillah. Ajeeb, right? People are like, why does Allah let people suffer? Why is there suffering in the world? <laughs> Sometimes that suffering is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Look at those people sitting in mansions and towers and luxuries and their kufr. Where will they end up? So the Prophet had a rough childhood. And here, Umm Ayman, she reports that I saw Muhammad crying behind the bed of Abdul Muttalib at his death. The Prophet had a soft heart. He wasn't weak, but he had a soft heart. When his children died, he cried. When his grandfather died, he cried. He was not a robot. SubhanAllah, he came under the protection now of Abu Talib. And Abu Talib, he obeyed his father. And for 40 years, for 40 years, Abu Talib supports the Prophet Financially, emotionally, against all enemies. And inshallah, we'll continue with that at the next dars. Bidhi Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala.